welcome to the House of Lords podcast. In this episode, we speak to the new Lord Speaker, Lord McFall of Alclariff, about his pathway to Parliament and what drove him to stand for election as Lord Speaker. We also hear from Lord Abuffnot of Edrum about the Horizon scandal, speaking up for wrongly convicted sub-postmasters and the work of the new committee that he chairs, which is looking at future threats to the UK. Welcome to our June episode. Um, so as you know, we started uh, the podcast during the pandemic and so far all of our interviews have been conducted uh, via video chat. So we're very excited this month to actually be able to do an interview in person. So today we'll be bringing you our first in-person interview, which was with the new Lord Speaker, Lord McFall of Alclariff. For our first in-person interview, we did follow government guidance on social distancing. Um, it did also mean that we had a bit more technology running. So you might hear things a little bit differently to normal. Before we get to the interviews, just a little roundup of what's happened recently. Uh, The last time we uh, had the podcast, we talked about the COVID secure state opening of parliament, which took place. We've since had government legislation introduced off the back of that. I counted up nine government bills before the House of Lords at the moment. So the House is busy back scrutinising new bills before parliament. And internally, Chloe Mawson was appointed as clerk assistant. A little bit of a confusing job title, but that's actually the second most senior role in the House of Lords administration. And in the history of that role, which was actually created um, in the 1600s, she is the first woman ever to to hold it. So quite a a monumentous appointment. Uh, So first up, we're going to be hearing from Lord McFall of Alcuith, um, all about why he wanted to become Lord Speaker, what he wants, what he hopes to do in that role, and and all about his career leading up to Parliament. Here's what he had to say. Hello, I'm John McFall. I'm the newly elected Lord Speaker. I'm taking up my duties on the 1st of May following uh, Lord Fowler, who has Lord Speaker for the past five years. During that time, I was Senior Deputy Speaker Deputy Chair of the Commission to Lord Fowler, and Lord Fowler and I worked very closely together on that. So I want to take forward a number of initiatives that he was known for, to develop the House of Laws and particularly to be reaching out. Lord Speaker, welcome to the podcast. Many people will know that you were an MP before you joined the House of Lords, but they might not be aware that you were a teacher before you were elected to the Commons. What led you into that career? Into teaching? Yeah. Well, I grew up in a community in the 60s where, in many ways in my community, a very working-class community, it was a noble aspiration to be a a school teacher. Since then, things have developed and there's been a wider range of uh, opportunities, uh, particularly for young people. But at that time, it was seen as a mark of progress to go to university and become a teacher. And I did enjoy my my teaching life. And I think one of the things I would like to engage in as Lord Speaker would be to encourage young people uh, to understand the House of Lords. During my time as Senior Deputy Speaker, every Thursday morning for an hour, I spoke to pupils in their schools. So I probably got to over 2,000 young people. And during all that time, I never heard any criticism of the House of Lords. What I did hear was young people's interest in finding out what I did 
the position of the House of Lords in the UK Parliament. So therefore, they're interested in politics. Perhaps they're not so interested in party politics, but they're interested in politics itself. And I think uh, during these times of doom, gloom, whatever, we've got to keep in mind that people are still interested in the society they're in and the issues that uh, we confront in Parliament. So did you find that they sort of were already quite informed about sort of Parliament or the House of Lords or, or not so much? They were informed about the issues in society, less informed about uh, the rituals in the House of Lords and how legislation was formed, how amendments were made, how we undertook our scrutiny. And the way I described it to them was quite simple. I said, the House of Lords is an institution which is secondary to the House of Commons in terms of decision-making. So the House of Commons is supreme. But what the House of Lords does is it takes the legislation, which, largely speaking, is inadequately scrutinised by the House of Commons, comes along to the House of Lords, and we undertake that scrubbing element with it. So we clean it up and we send it back to the House of Commons. And when I tell the young people that, say, in an average uh, year would have something like, say, 1,300 or so amendments, 95% of which were accepted by the House of Commons, then they can see that there is a good purpose to the second chamber. And I make comment on issues of bills that went through, whether we're talking about the latest trade bill that went through the past few weeks, whether we're talking about the domestic abuse bill or whatever else it is. So making the House of Lords relevant to the environment which they and their parents are involved in is important. And so from teaching to politics then, what made you want to want to go into that? What made you run to be an MP? I'd always been interested in politics. Uh, in fact, I was looking at the BBC iPlayer programme the other evening on Watergate. It's running just now. It's quite a fascinating programme. But I, before I went into politics itself locally, uh, I was watching the American scene very closely. And I remember my friends uh, who emigrated to America, I was telling them all about Nixon and what was going to happen. And they were in quite a bit of ignorance of it because the Guardian had followed that very, very closely and had a great understanding of it. So that basis and that wider aspect of politics and society, uh, that was always keen to me. But one of my friends was a councillor locally and he asked me if I would like to be involved in politics. I said, look, I ain't interested in being a councillor because I'm a school teacher, I've got my family, I've got enough to do. My little brain can only deal with that. However, I did join the local Labour Party and I was involved very much in the administration of it, uh, particularly the secretarial work and the chairmanship. And at the time, in the Labour Party. It was a turbulent time uh, in the, the 1980s. And I suppose uh, what I did was I kept the show on the road uh, with it. I remember Harold Wilson's comment at the time when he said that the Labour Party was like a Morris Minor car. I think it was great when it was going along the road and people were hanging out the windows. Uh, but uh, once it stopped, if there was a blowout with a tyre, then it was absolute mayhem. So <laughs> I had to keep the show on the road uh, locally on that. And doing that, got myself very much involved with the members. And when it came to the 
member of parliament at the time retiring uh, suggested I put my name forward. I didn't think, to be honest with you, that I did have the, a chance of getting selected because there were a number of well-known names that uh, were put forward. For example, George Galloway. George came up to contest it. But uh, I had the local connection and I was born and raised in the area. Uh, and I think uh, that was very helpful to it. And actually, having been an MP for so many years and having represented my local area, I feel like that's a particular point of pride for me. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Who writes history? <laughs> Perhaps I can rake over a bit of that history uh, with some follow-up questions. So you spent 23 years in the Commons, by my calculations. Late 90s, you were in government as a whip and uh, a junior minister. Um, before then chairing the Commons Treasury Select Committee during the height of the banking crisis. That's just some of what you were doing in that period. But have you got any particular memorable moments as an MP? I suppose there are a number of memorable moments. Well, first of all, uh, I was in opposition and from 1992 to 1997, I was on the Scottish front bench uh, as deputy to George Robertson, who went on to become Defence Secretary and NATO General Secretary. And actually, when I got this job, George sent me an email of congratulations. And uh, he did say uh, to me at the time that uh, he hopes this job is easier than the Scottish front bench job. Mm -hmm. Because, in his opinion, uh, being General Secretary of NATO was an easier post than being on the Scottish front bench at that time. It was pre-devolution. <laughs> exactly, because we were responsible for everything. And I mean, I remember, for example, on a Thursday evening, uh, getting the overnight train up from London to my home, getting in about half past seven, having a shower, and then getting in my car and driving to Inverness uh, to engage in assisting the prospective candidate in Inverness, Dave Stewart, who was at the time, uh, and others, uh, with their campaigns, and then driving back in the afternoon to get to my constituents in the evening. Now, I know when it's implanted in my mind, uh, the distance between Dumbarton and Inverness is 181 miles, depending where you're going in the city centre <laughs> as a result of that. But the reason I did the car up and down in one day is I couldn't get the train and be back uh, for the evening in my own area. In that. So uh, these were really uh, very, very busy times and there was a multiplicity of issues that you, you were dealing with uh, that was, you know, took her time and attention. So I would agree wholeheartedly with George Robertson's assertion about that time. And uh, you joined the Lords in 2010. Did, did that come as a surprise to you? Were you expecting to join the Lords in 2010? Yeah, well, if truth be known, my family had been at me for quite a time because when you go on the tramway mm. of politics, it's very hard to get off. But all my family were saying, look, You've had enough, Dad, uh, and get off, you know, uh, with it. And by the way, the story goes on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this, so that was it. But I was asked by Gordon Brown to come in because of the experience I had in the economic and the financial field. And I felt that I had something to contribute in that particular area. And actually, I wasn't in a couple of years before I was asked to go on the Parliamentary Commission for Banking Standards along with Archbishop of Canterbury, Nigel Lawson and Lord Turnbull here. And we made a big, big difference uh, to that. And that illustrated to me that the joint working arrangements with the Lords and the Commons works. And I want to push 
initiatives like that. And that's why it's important uh, during my speakership that we have an engagement with the House of Commons as well, because this is a UK Parliament, and the work of the Lords complements the work of the House of Commons. It doesn't crowd it out at all. And it, certainly the Parliamentary Commission for Banking Standards, I think that was gold standard example of the two houses working together. And indeed, it was in the House of Lords that we secured uh, crucial amendments which the government weren't willing to embrace near the end. And we were getting encouraged by the MPs to put these amendments down because unlike the House of Commons, we don't have a guillotine here and we uh, can debate for as long as possible. You mentioned there being an advocate for joint working with the Commons, obviously 23 years in the Commons and then coming to the Lords. What, what were some of the other differences you noticed between the two houses on joining the Lords? Well, I mentioned to you I was on the front bench in Scotland. Largely speaking, uh, MPs don't really bother about what's happening in the House of Lords. I would like to change that in part. But when I was responsible for Home Affairs in Scotland, uh, at that time. It was one of the many areas I was responsible for. Uh, by the way, Highlands and Islands was another, and that's why I had to go to Inverness <laughs> regularly on that. But when I was responsible for Home Affairs, I used to come along to the House of Lords to listen to the debates, and, and particularly at the time, the Law Lords, and listening to what was happening there. So, if you like, I get a good layman's education on the law, legal, and Home Affairs uh, on that so it was uh, a legal diploma for idiots uh, guide that I took, undertook in that. But I found the level of insight in the laws very, very helpful to me uh, as someone new to home affairs and legal affairs in my brief. Fast forward to uh, this year, Lord Fowler announces he's stepping down early, leaving a uh, vacancy as Lord Speaker. What inspired you to stand for election as Lord Speaker? You've already spoken about some of the things you'd like to sort of achieve, but what, what, what made you think it was you who should be elected? Very good point. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what, why is it me? Some people say I've been off my head, right? <laughs> because there's big issues uh, uh, that, that we have to confront. But actually, as Deputy Lord Fowler, and I mentioned that him and I get on hugely well together in terms of how we want to see things progress, that I dealt with the problematic issues, whether we're talking about, say, the hybrid house in the past year, whether we're talking about the review of committees, which we've now, now established, uh, whether we're talking about the work of the, the commission and being deputed to them there. There were big issues there, and the, we have still to close a lot of them off on it. And I felt that with Lord Fowler leaving with the Clerk of the Parliament's leaving uh, with uh, my position having to be vacated because had I not stood for the Lord Speakership then I would have had to demit office from that so uh, there would be a big gap in institutional memory and given that I had familiarity uh, with a number of issues I felt that the next few years in particular are going to be full of change and engagement. Now, when I say change, it's change which is underlined by collegiality and collaboration. But uh, Heraclitus, 500 BC, change is the only reality. So every day is a day of change. So how do we take that change along and how do we bring the house along? And 
the external management view is very clear in that the House of Lords was about 15 years behind the rest of Whitehall in terms of how it organised its business. So quite a lot to undergo. So when I question what you said there is knowing all the problems, why did it take it on? <laughs> so I'll maybe come back to you in a few years with that with a full answer. That sounds like we've got another booking. <laughs> um, you've already outlined some of the sort of big ticket things you hope to achieve as um, Lord Speaker. You just mentioned there change is reality. So what sort of changes are you looking to achieve sort of in the more immediate term? What's well, on your agenda at the moment? Well, first of all, the Burns Committee report uh, in reducing the size of the House. And I think that's important. And I've already had a meeting with Lord Burns uh, individually, but also with uh, Terry and his committee. Uh, we'll discuss that. And just by chance, I was in the House of Commons a few weeks ago and the Prime Minister saw me passing. So he had a cheery hello to me and congratulations. And he since sent me a nice letter on it. So he said, all the best. I said, right. All the best to you. I'll come and see you. He says, okay. Right. So him and I have got a date sometime in the future on it. And again, my experience, whether it is uh, as a school teacher, uh, whether it was as a politician in Northern Ireland uh, when I was there for a few years, uh, you will only get an understanding and engagement if you have eyeball to eyeball, if you meet people personally on that. And you mentioned about my time in the House of Commons. I was asked in the late 80s, early 90s, to go in the British-Irish Parliamentary Group, uh, which had been established. Now, it was an enjoyable experience in that. But in terms of policy, there wasn't very much in policy uh, at all. But there was a good social engagement, and we always ended up having a good night, whether you know in Dublin or, or here or whatever else it was. But... What happened there is we got to know people individually. So that, say, when the peace process uh, came along, uh, I was familiar in first-name terms uh, with quite a number of people. Uh, for example, Enda Kenny, who was a tea shop for a while. Michael Martin, who's now the tea shop, who was education minister. And I was education minister in Northern Ireland at the time. So we had these arrangements. And that understanding uh, with each other uh, was very important. And also the understanding... Uh, with all the politicians in Northern Ireland. And one of the things about the job here is that uh, there's quite a smattering of Northern Ireland politicians here across all the parties. And I got on with every one of them because we had to deal with them to solve problems at that particular time. Uh, so that's important. So the human element uh, of politics is really, really important. And mention Northern Ireland. If I could say to you, one of my abiding memories of Northern Ireland was the 15th of August 1998 at 25 past 3 in the afternoon, which is a Saturday, when I was in Northern Ireland as the only minister, and it was the first day that I was minister, and then I got a telephone call to say that a bomb had gone off in Oma, uh, and as the only minister, I was in Oma a couple of hours later, and I had to deal with the trauma of that immediately. Uh, ending up going to Requiem Mass for Spanish children who died in Madrid a couple of days later. But then, as the minister responsible, given 
that responsibility by the late Mo Molum, dealing with the aftermath of OMA and what was required in the different services there. So that human element has never left me uh, as, as a result of that, and that's been a searing experience for me. Um, so you mentioned there the human element. Um, how have you found it over the last sort of year and a bit now uh, with the pandemic, the effect that that's had on everybody, and of course, you know, the, the complete change that the houses sort of face with sort of hybrid proceedings and things like that? Well, I suppose I could say I was at the centre of that, being the chairman of the procedure committee, <laughs> having to do that. But to be honest with you, I mentioned to you about a risk-free environment, the need for a risk-free environment. That was a time, actually, when we had no option other than a risk-free environment. And it was left to the initiative of the staff uh, to engage and for myself and other senior members to make decisions based on the best information which we had. And I see that as a real team effort, you know, with great staff doing it. So that's the first thing. I would say that. Second, it was a difficult period uh, on that. We had uh, quite a number of uh, tortuous discussions in the Commission to ensure that we had the financial arrangements correct in that, but, but also to ensure, in terms of the technology, that uh, we had peers who were able to deal with, with the technology. And if you'd taken a bet at that time, between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, in terms of dealing with technology, you would have said that the old lags are not going to win on that. But the old lags did win. I got interviewed in The Guardian a number of months ago by Peter Walker, and his report was very clear that the House of Lords has won that in terms of technological advance. Now, we did that, A, because of the quality of the staff we've got, but B, because we allowed them to develop their initiative in that area. So that's important to, to recognise. In members, this was very strange for members, and it was important to engage with members as much as possible, if we could have one-to-ones with that, to reassure people in that. Uh, I was very much involved in that. But with staff involved in that area as well, in terms of technology, it ended up as a one-to-one engagement with staff and members. And even the members who said that they didn't have any emails, they came on board and it worked perfectly for that. On reflection, now a year later, you know, the question is, wait a minute, we want to get back to normal. What have we missed as a result of that? Well, we've missed the human engagement which is really important, you know, the eyeball-to-eyeball engagement on that. We've also, I suppose, and I agree with members who say this, we've also not had the level of scrutiny that uh, you would get from a normal situation on that. And um, the need for us to get back is really important to get that level of scrutiny going. Now, but we have to do it within Public Health England guidelines and to make sure everyone's safe. But certainly, on reflection, members think that uh, we've lost out in part because of it, whilst recognising that the system that was put in place was the best that possibly could be done during the circumstances. But there's areas that we would be looking at uh, for the future. For example, the private notice questions 
uh, that's an initiative which Lord Fowler has undertaken, and actually I've uh, continued with that. And it discusses the issues of the day. For example, yesterday there was a private notice question put down on the education issue. The government were offering a fraction of what they were supposed to have promised Kevin Collins. So I allowed a private notice question on that. And if a, there is a contemporary issue to that, and as we speak, uh, there is another private notice question being debated today by the bishops in Albans, which is on the G7 and tax avoidance and what this really means. And if I give my own experience here as a former chairman of the Treasury Committee, whenever you get a financial statement out, the first thing you look at is, how will this look tomorrow? And what about the nuts and bolts of it? So it's with that in mind that I thought that this would be very good to look at, to get an idea exactly what this means in terms of the multinational companies and the level of taxation that we hope to, to get from that. Um, am I right in thinking that you still live close by to where you grew up? I do, actually. I, I live uh, 250 yards from where my, I had my first job, the weeding gardens, uh, so I can still see it from my front uh, house. I live about 500 yards from where I was raised, born and raised uh, as a result of it. And my wife and I lived probably about uh, 400 yards from each other. So it's all pretty small town stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The boy is local (laughs) and therefore, you know, uh, I can't get away with any fancy stuff anywhere uh, as a result of that. I knew your mammy, you know. uh, (laughs) Everyone knows everyone, everyone knows everyone's business. (laughs) Um, You said at the top that you want to uh, reach out to to people, you want to reach out to all areas of the UK. Um, How do you think that the Lords does that at the moment? Do you think the Lords, you know, effectively represents all the four nations? Well, I mentioned about the review of committees. The reports that committees undertake here are really gold-plated reports, terrific. And at the time of Brexit, the EU committee, uh, the stuff that they were come out with was landmark stuff. For example, uh, on Brexit, right at the very beginning, the EU committee came out with a report, and when they produced it, they sent Lord Jay, former Foreign Office uh, Permanent Secretary, to Dublin to launch the report, whilst we had a launch here, and there was one in Belfast as well as a result of that. So... We're well received with our reports, whether you go to Europe uh, or other capitals, on that. But there was a view that whilst the reports are good, that uh, we discuss them on the floor of the House. And by the way, there's a problem uh, with that in the sense that quite a number of the chairs were saying they don't get enough time from the government for that. So I had to take up that issue with them. But we discuss them on the floor of the House. And then it, it doesn't really go anywhere after that. That was a, that was a complaint that was made uh, to me. We've tried to ensure that there's a resonance to our reports now. And uh, I think it would be good reaching out to the different communities with it. For example, uh, the report that Lord Bassam undertook on seaside towns, I think it was, uh, what they did was that they went out to all those areas uh, and took evidence uh, on that and presented their, their 
findings and listened to what people were saying. And it was very, very successful. So, so that's an example. Another example going way back, I think it was in 2013, when I came in here, I was fortunate enough to be on the Economic Affairs Committee. Uh, Lord McGregor was the chairman at the time. And we undertook a report on Scotland uh, and its position in the UK uh, vis-à-vis the financial services and the Bank of England after independence. We weren't making a case against independence or for independence. We were just looking at the arrangements that are in place and what uh, both sides would have to do as a result. That ended up a very, very successful report and what it provided was the framework for a lot of the discussion during the debate uh, on the referendum in 2014 in Scotland. So I've seen it firsthand, the good work that they were doing there, but I want to that to resonate uh, even more. And as one of our colleagues had said, uh, why don't we brand the House of Lords as the best think tank in town? You know, given the expertise that's here, uh, we can do that, but it needs a little change in the tiller and uh, more emphasis uh, on it. And I think that it would be important to ensure that we have the work of the committees as a strategic objective of the Commission. In other words, it's tied to enhancing the reputation of the House. How do we go about enhancing the reputation of the House? By ensuring that our reports not only are read, but that they're followed up, that there's a civic element and social element to that, and that we ensure that the government, and by the way, this can be any government, uh, because I I knew that when I was chair of the Treasury Committee and I was confronting the Labour government, that the government stick by their pledges uh, on that. So I think there's a great opportunity to do that and reaching out. Mm-hmm. And you've, um, as we said, you've been a member since 2010. It's been quite a turbulent time, actually, in British politics, you could say, since then. Um, I wonder if you have any sort of most memorable or sort of favourite time, favourite moments from your time in the House? Favourite moments in the time of the House? I remember, <laughs> actually, way, way back, uh, uh, probably the early 90s, uh, when... Uh, one of the MPs, I think he's since died, Ron Brown, he lifted the mace. I don't know if you remember that incident. And I'm far too young. Yeah, it's far too young. But what caused us, as we call in Scotland, it caused a real stooshy, you know, and this was really terrible. You know, somebody going up and lifting the mace. God forbid what has happened here. So we had a special debate on it. And I remember being in the debate that night and the late Michael Foote was there. Tony Benn was there, Michael Hesseltine, because I think Michael had lifted the mace many years later, but it, I think that was at the time of the nationalisation of shipbuilding at the, at the time. But I got a real lesson that night on constitutional history. Now, I went into this debate thinking, oh, this is a waste of time, and I got a real lesson. So you, you're always getting surprised in, in the House, you know, by the depth uh, of understanding and, and history on it. And that was one area uh, where I had. And I remember one that made a great impression on me was uh, one evening when uh, we thought business was going to finish at 10 o'clock, but the news came through about the plane being downed at Lock- Lockerbie as a result of that. 
and we reconvened in the House that evening at 10 o'clock to listen to that tragic news as a result of it. So it's issues like that that keep uh, in your memory. Uh, Lord Speaker, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast in person for the first time as well. So really nice to be here with you today. Well, thank you very much, Matt, and thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to you this morning. Next up, we hear from Lord Abuffnot of Edrum about his campaigning for justice for sub-postmasters. He also talks to us about his role as chair of the House of Lords Committee on Risk. I'm James Abuffnot, Lord Abuffnot. I used to be the MP for North East Hampshire when I came across Joe Hamilton because she was a constituent of mine, and she was one of the sub-postmasters, becoming, in fact, the lead public face of the sub-postmasters' battle for justice and for for compensation and for having the convictions quashed. In 2009, I first became involved, and then... In 2015, I left the House of Commons and came into the House of Lords. And I've been one of those people who've been campaigning on behalf of the sub-postmasters ever since. I'm also chairman of the Short-Term Risk Select Committee. I say it's Short-Term Select Committee rather than Short-Term Risk that we're dealing with, uh, because it's a select committee that's looking into the issue of long-term and or catastrophic risks that that threaten the country and indeed the world. So we're looking into that and we will have to report by the end of November of this year. So James, you've been campaigning on the issue of sub-postmasters who were affected by problems with the Horizon IT system for a number of years. People may know that a group of people were wrongly accused of theft, but could you tell us how it all started? There are two different things here. There's the way it all started and the way I got involved. The way it all started was, I think, back in 1999, when the post office was looking for a new for a new IT system, and they introduced the Horizon system. And there were real concerns at the time in 1999 about whether it was uh, working well. Anyway, over a period of years, uh, it began to be introduced. And then it was imposed on these sub-postmasters by the post office with no option to not to have it. And prosecutions began to happen on the basis that money was going missing. Uh, the sub-postmasters involved insisted that they were not to blame. Uh, and the post office thought, I think genuinely, that the new accounting system had uncovered a set of uh, dishonest sub-postmasters that had previously not come to light. I first became involved in 2009 when a sub-postmaster 
in a village in my constituency said that he had a problem and that somebody else in a neighboring village also had a problem and could I see them? And I met them in South Warnborough, which was Joe Hamilton's sub post office. Uh, Joe Hamilton became the uh, lead face of the Justice for Sub Postmasters Alliance. But what I discovered was first that the, the person who had contacted me then dropped out of contact with me. I think he left my constituency. Joe Hamilton had pleaded guilty to false accounting, having been threatened with the, the more serious allegation of theft. And in order not to go to prison, she pleaded guilty to false accounting. And she, having pleaded guilty to false accounting, I and the other sub-postmaster having left my constituency, that was the end of the matter, so far as I was concerned. But in 2011, the whole issue began to arise again because a firm of solicitors in nearby to my constituency said that they had, I think it was 19 different allegations of something similar going wrong. And I thought, this is too much of a coincidence. There's a huge number of these things. So I began to write round to MPs to ask whether they had experienced anything similar. And a lot of MPs had. So we got together and had a meeting with those MPs and those sub-postmasters early in 2012. And as a result of that, the whole campaign began to get going. So it was pressure by a group of MPs, such as yourself, that put pressure on the government to start an investigation into the well, situation? Yes. Initially, it put pressure on the post office um, because I got in touch with the chairman of the post office. I, I met the incoming chairman, Alice Perkins, uh, at a conference in Ditchley Park and said, we're, we're going to need to have a conversation about something that does seem to be going wrong. Alice Perkins said, let's have a couple of you in. She asked uh, Oliver Letwin and me in to the post office where we met Paula Vanels, uh, the chief executive, and Alice Perkins to discuss the possibility that something was going seriously wrong. It seemed clear to Oliver and me that they were genuinely concerned to get to the bottom of it. They seemed to want to uh, help. Uh, Paula Vanels suggested that there should be the appointment of a forensic accountant firm to help out. And that was exactly the sort of response that Oliver and I, and uh, back in the House of Commons, the other MPs, were wanting, because if the post office was going to help us get through this with our constituents, then that was exactly what we needed to happen. And uh, in, in 2015, of course, you became a member of the House of Lords, um, and you've continued to campaign on this issue. Um, do you feel that you had to sort of change your approach in pushing for a resolution to this situation? Or, you know, how, how, how did it change things, if at all? Well, becoming a member of the House of Lords didn't change things. It's, uh, did, that didn't change things itself, no. 
because what had happened between uh, the initial meeting with Alice Perkins and Paul Vanells and Oliver Lepin and me and 2015 was that the post office, in brief, set up a mediation scheme. But they also discovered, which we didn't know, that they were prosecuting people on the basis of false evidence. They discovered that uh, they knew that that evidence was false, and they didn't then tell the sub-postmasters, they didn't tell the MPs that that was going on. In fact, in 2015, they told a select committee that they had no reason to suppose that the convictions that they were obtaining were unsafe, whereas in fact, they had been advised specifically of that by the forensic accountants and by a team of lawyers who were advising them. So they had misled us. But at that stage, the mediation scheme broke down. Then the Justice for Sub-Postmasters Alliance took the post office to court and the whole matter became sub judice So it wasn't something that was pursuable through the parliamentary process. So while while I moved from the House of Commons to the House of Lords, there was a sense that the uh, campaign in Parliament was in abeyance. And it was only in 2019 that uh, the Justice for Sub-Postmasters case was so spectacularly successful uh, as against the post office. Uh, and we could then begin to pursue it again through uh, par parliamentary means. We found the quote uh, from you in 2015. Uh, I think you said that in the House of Lords, you actually have to win the argument. And can I just ask you for some reflections on what you feel about the opportunities are in the House of Lords to campaign on issues such like this? Well, it's it's very un unusual for someone, I think, to pursue a campaign both in the House of Commons and in, in the House of Lords. In the House of Lords, you have to win the argument. In the House of Commons, you have to win the majority. And yet, this is an unusual campaign in, in that nobody in the House of Commons or in the House of Lords, apart from the ministers defending a government line, nobody has actually supported the government line on this. And so the government is going to have to make it very, very difficult for the House of Commons to hold a vote. If there were a vote in the House of Lords, then virtually nobody would support the government line, which is holding for the time being that the sub-postmasters who brought the successful litigation against the post office should not be properly compensated. I mean, of course, they should be properly compensated, but the government feels protected by a government majority in the House of Commons, which I think is very shaky on this issue. And in the House of Lords, the government would lose any vote 
on not compensating the sub-postmaster. So uh, the government is moving gradually and slowly towards uh, building up a scheme which would compensate everybody. And it hasn't been able to announce that scheme yet. But the the reason it is doing so, I think, is because of the pressure on it, both in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords, which is proving uh, which is proving effective. But it's the government has got to do the right thing on this. And I think eventually it will. It's just taking so long. So this has been a campaign that you have pushed for as a member of parliament for many years, if you, as you've said. Throughout that time, what has driven you to continue campaigning, to continue sort of the fight for this cause? It's something that I had no choice really about getting involved in because I was Joe Hamilton's member of parliament. And it, it became obvious to me very early on that she and other sub-postmasters were telling the truth and if they were telling the truth, as I believe they were, then a monstrous injustice had been perpetrated by a government-owned organisation, the post office. And there's only one thing you can do if you're an MP in such circumstances, and that is to fight for the monstrous injustice to be overturned. But this is something that has never happened before. Uh, a The number of injustices that have now been overturned by the Court of Appeal as a result of a referral by the Criminal Cases Review Commission, uh, the previous largest number was 10. Well, now we are well into the 40s or 50s, and there are hundreds more to come. So this is uh, an extraordinary, it's never, it has never happened before. And what has driven me has been a, a sense of monstrous injustice, which has got to be put right. There was a similar sort of campaign, which again, I was involved in, in relation to the Chinook crash on the Mall of Kintar. Again, that involved my constituency because the Chinook helicopter fleet was based in uh, northeast Hampshire when I was the MP. And that campaign took 16 years. Eventually, it did involve a select committee of the House of Lords, which uh, got the matter overturned. Um, but it takes a very long time. Maybe it's something that the House of Lords actually is particularly suited to, because um, it was a former defence uh, minister, Lord Chalfont, who suggested a select committee in the House of Lords, uh, which came to the right result. And then there was a special inquiry set up by the government in much the same way as is happening with the uh, with the post office horizon scandal. Um, and you mentioned there a potential um, government compensation scheme and the many convictions that were quashed and, and others still being investigated. Uh, do you think that will be the end of this issue or is there still more that needs to be done, need to change? Well, in order for us to end this scandal, we have to have two things. We have to have compensation, full, 
proper compensation for everybody who has been so badly wronged. And we have to hold to account those people who perpetrated it. Neither has happened. And the holding to account of those people who perpetrated these dreadful, dreadful events is very important for two reasons. First, we need to ensure that it never happens again. And that will only happen if people who do it know that there are consequences for doing it. And second, those sub-postmasters who've been to prison, um, sadly, we can never give a sense of justice to the people who've committed suicide, but some people have been to prison, many have suffered bankruptcy, have seen their marriages break up. Some have seen their families break up because they were required by the post office to sack family members who the post office were accusing of being dishonest. They need a sense of justice too. And justice is very important. Justice is part of the psyche of the British people. And a sense of fairness can only be instilled if we hold those people to account. So we need two things to come out. First, full proper compensation, that hasn't happened. And second, a sense of holding to account and justice, and that hasn't happened. So until both of those things have happened, this matter won't be closed. And so did they actually ever get to the bottom of what went wrong? Well, A, not yet. B, it wasn't only the technology that went wrong. It was the contractual arrangement and the training and the offensive investigation and management that went wrong as well. But the technology did go wrong in that Fujitsu had a method of changing sub-postmasters' accounts without the sub-postmasters being aware of it. And we told the post office and the ministers in 2013 that this was happening. And they did nothing about it. Instead, what they did was that they they tried to outspend the sub-postmasters in their litigation, and they outspent them with the use of taxpayers' money. I think it is so atrocious in terms of government behaviour as well as post office behaviour, in, in terms of purely human behaviour, that it's not the sort of thing that one could ever let go. You were speaking uh, just now about the power of Lords Committee inquiries. Uh, you were recently appointed the chair of the new Lords Committee on Risk Assessment and Risk Planning. Um, what would the committee be focusing on first? Well, the committee came into being because the government had at the top of its risk register in, uh, 19, in 2019 uh, a pandemic. And the government had been advised that a pandemic might create a number of deaths, maybe up to 100. 
and 130,000 and more deaths later, we realized that maybe the government's method of dealing with risk assessment and risk planning uh, left something to be desired. But the, what we don't want to do is to focus on the last war. We don't want this select committee to be only a matter of making sure that we deal with pandemics in the future. There are lots of other risks that we need to prepare properly for. For example, uh, if there were an effective cyber attack on national grid, which switched off the electricity grid for longer than a week, then modern life as we know it would grind to a halt. We would have no communications, we'd have no money, we'd have no method of spending money, so we wouldn't be able to buy food. Uh, there would be no water because it's pumped by electricity. And if there were no communications, no money, no food and no water, order would break down very, very soon. And it would be very difficult to restore it because there would be no communications. Uh, it'd be quite difficult to mobilize the emergency forces. So this is all very apocalyptic, but uh, it's the sort of thing for which you can uh, prepare yourselves, provided you are prepared to take the long-term decisions. And it's taking long-term decisions beyond the electoral cycle that is going to be difficult uh, for any democratic elected government to do, but it's what we are trying to work out, how we can best encourage politicians and governments to take long-term decisions and not to allow things simply to be forgotten because the moment of crisis has passed. This is We have an opportunity now because of the COVID pandemic to learn the lessons from this risk and this hazard and build back better, as people keep saying, so that we don't get into this position again. Um, and committees, of course, take evidence from lots of different people. You've recently heard from uh, writers such as Robert Harris, um, as well as former ministers, first responders, academics um, and international experts. Um, how do all of those differing contributions feed into the committee's thinking? Oh, well, yes, we, we decided to have a panel of science fiction writers and Robert Harris doesn't really it doesn't really classify himself as that he describes himself more as a historian but what we were worried about in that particular session was uh, the risk that the that politicians and uh, strategists might lack the imagination to work out what could hit us um, and so we thought, well, science fiction writers uh, imagine the impossible and write about the future in a way which really harnesses imagination. And it was a very, very interesting session. That was that was one session uh, in a completely different vein. We had a session on flooding. We were hearing yesterday from Oliver Letwin how the government had set up a whole new set of thinking um, about flooding, but then abandoned it 
shortly before the country was hit with massive floods uh, because, as he put it, we had been told that some of the flooding risks were once once in 10,000 years, uh, maybe once in the life of the universe, and they seem to be happening uh, uh, once every two years instead. Uh, the, the point about some of the risks that we face is that they are becoming more and more prevalent, maybe because of climate change, maybe because of the change and our reliance on technology, maybe because of population growth. But one uh, evidence session we had concentrated on the fact that we won't predict whatever, whatever risk it is that uh, we will face. And so we have to be more able to respond to risks in a flexible way, because resilience, which is one of the things that we want to see built into the country, uh, involves adaptability and flexibility, rather than predicting the risks and getting all of those right. Uh, our historical uh, success rate on that has been poor. So we want to be able to respond to any risk, including those that we have never experienced before, because new technology brings new risks that we haven't experienced. And uh, we want to be able to respond to risks that uh, are more than just those risks that people are old enough to have experienced in their lifetimes. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really interesting hearing about um, the Horizon scandal and, and what your committee's up to. Thank you. Well, not at all. Um, I've enjoyed it. And that's it for another month's edition of the House of Lords podcast. If you've got a burning question you want us to answer, then you can message us on any of our social media platforms, so Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, or you can email us at hlinfo at parliament.uk. Thank you.